Good morning. Aaron, great job with those cities. I am going to butcher them, so I appreciate you. And by the way, I was going to get up here and preach in a Debo Samuel 49ers jersey, but right before I came up, I was like, "Ah, I'm going to switch because people like Aaron Rodgers need Jesus too. And so here I am. I'm excited to preach to you, and I hope that my dress will not uh, cause you to stumble. (sighs) Glad that you're here or on live stream. As we continue our series in the book of Acts, the actions of the apostles by the Holy Spirit. The first week of this series, a few weeks back, we discussed the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised would come, and that the followers of Jesus were told to wait for that specific promise. Last week, we heard about the replacing of an apostle after Judas gave up his relationship with Jesus for a servant's wage. This week, we'll see the Holy Spirit show up in a loud and grand way, not for the glory of the apostles, but for the glory of God. Today, we study something that is descriptive in what took place in first century in Jerusalem, so we're going to jump right into it. So, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. We're going to camp here for a moment. The day of Pentecost. It means 50 days, or the day after the seventh week from the Passover, 49 days, and then the day after. See, 49 or, okay, 49 days. It is a festival where Jews would come to celebrate these 50 days after the Passover. It was also known as the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks, and it celebrated the end of the grain harvest. So look at who Luke points out could have been in chapter 2 as he wrote in chapter 1, verses 13, 14, and 15. It says, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. So in chapter 1, they're talking about they went up into this room. And I got to be honest, as we're in chapter 2, I think a lot of us picture 120 people in this little room. I don't think they're in this little room. So how many people were there at Pentecost? Some would argue 12. Some would say it was up to 120, which included the 12, the women, and Jesus' brothers. So, Scripture isn't as specific as some of us think when we read this about how many were actually there at Pentecost, but these were the people, so don't miss this, these were the people who were serious about Jesus and what He had said about waiting for the power that was promised. Hmm. Think about this. Let's just assume the greatest number that could have been there was 120. That's a pretty uh, assumed number for a lot. The early church began with 120 people built around the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Thousands over three and a half years had heard Jesus teach. They had seen Him perform miracles. They had heard or seen His crucifixion. The Scripture says that He showed Himself to over 500 people at once in the 40 days before He ascended to heaven. And 120 people are the ones who stayed steadfast and endured through the drama and fear of being apprehended by the Roman authorities. 120. Jesus is not a very good megachurch pastor. Did you notice? But the kingdom of God seems to be 
about quality, not quantity. Let me tease this out. See, not that God doesn't want the masses to turn to Him. We generally know 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, even though sometimes we miss that all people could mean all types of people. But the reality is not all turn to Christ. I hope that isn't new news to you, even though most of us, when we go to a, a uh, funeral, it seems like everyone's turned to Christ everywhere when we're there. But some just refuse to turn to Him. And in some cases, people turn to Him just enough to feel good about themselves. They'll memorize verses, but they won't let God change their immoral activities. They'll claim Jesus on Sunday morning, but they'll worship creation all week. They'll look the part, but they'll live the opposite with the assumption that grace ought to extend to them. The reality is that God is gracious, but grace is costly. It costs Jesus his life. And to be Jesus' disciple while committing requires only faith in order to be uh, 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 secured by Jesus. It requires faith, but real faith means your life has now been bought by Christ. Because God is about quality, not just quantity. I know studying what happened to Judas last week may have been hard for some of us, but I want to point out something that ought to be remembered. No one deserves God's grace. Let me let that sit there for a second. No one. That's the point of grace. It's undeserved favor. No one deserves God's gift of His Son, and yet God in His grace and mercy allows some of us to know Him. Not because we're good, but because God is good. And I think when we have a tough time digesting the fate of Judas, we are usually looking at the world through what we believe to be fair and unfair, and we aren't looking at the kingdom of God with the king on his throne who gave up his life while innocent, making sinners like us not guilty through his perfect record. This has to make sense to some, because if Christianity is all about the quantity, then why does Jesus have such hard sayings about following him? Why does he tell us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him? Why does he say that we must love him above our family and material things in such a devoted love that in comparison, our love for our families should look like hate? Why does Jesus tell the crowds that they must eat his body and drink his blood? Why does he give such credence to those who are humble when the mass majority of people, especially religious people, are prideful? Why is it about quality over quantity? Because as we will study in just a moment regarding the Holy Spirit's lasting appearance, that the Spirit of God doesn't make us just acknowledge Jesus, but devote our existence to Him. The third person of the Trinity doesn't help the disciples be happy, content, and religious. He affirms and confirms our satisfaction in the finished work of Jesus as our only means of justification before a perfect God. Let me say that in a way less spiritual way. The Holy Spirit isn't a good feeling. He's a guarantee of our redemption. No spirit, no salvation. And the result of our satisfaction being in the gospel of grace is that we know there is nothing we can do to earn or pay God back. So our service to Him is voluntary, and, our, and it's out of love for Him and what He has done rather than out of duty and need to appease him. This is why passages in Matthew 7 that are said by Jesus 
seem to really be hard to hear, but unfortunately, they're really realistic of the masses. In Matthew 7, 13 through 14, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. That doesn't sound like good news, but it does sound like reality. Not just based on the people who don't attend church or think religion is for dumb, crazy people, or just the fair-weather fans that really only do religion when it's convenient for them, it also could include the people who do attend the church often, give of an offering regularly, serve in ministry, and may I be so bold to say even pastor in some churches, all with the reasoning behind of such efforts as justification for their souls. I used to travel and speak, and I used to go to places all over North America primarily, and I got to go places that I wouldn't normally uh, experience the type of people that I experienced in other parts of the country that I would here. And one thing I noticed, and I won't say where, but in the South, one place I noticed was that people tended to give me respect because I was a pastor or a minister when they heard that that's why I was there. But when I would discuss their spiritual lives and talk about the gospel saving me, they tended to point more to their actions, or in some cases, their blessings, as proof that they were in right relationship with God. Listen, if you have nice things, it might be a blessing, it might be a curse, but in no way does it justify you in the kingdom of God. What I believe makes the redeemed, Holy Spirit-led believer different than just someone who believes in a set of facts and lives morally, at least in front of other people, is that the redeemed and indwelled know they cannot justify themselves. So they are grateful to the one who does the justification for them in Jesus. It's hard to be prideful when the gospel isn't about you, but you receive it anyway. A Christian who acts like, something, like they had something to do with their salvation is the person who thinks they got a discount on heaven rather than received it as a gift. So, I want to do something, especially because the sermon is wordy, it's theological, I need, I need some participation. So, here's what we're going to do. We haven't done a poll or a survey in church in quite a while, but I want to try something, and I need you guys to be involved, and so even those in the cheap seats need to be involved, okay? I'm going to ask you to stand or stay seated as an example of your answer, all right? You guys ready for this? You can talk back. Okay, good. Here we go. Do you have affection for country music? If you have affection for country music, would you stand? All right, my people, yes, yes. All right, you guys can be seated. Now, if you are a hater of country music, would you stand? <laughs> and then there's a decent amount of you that don't care. All right, thanks, have a seat. I have effectively split the church, you're welcome. Now, I'm a fan, I enjoy country music, and it wasn't always that way, but then I bought an F-150 and I matured and was more sanctified, just saying. Here, here's why I bring it up. I run, you guys know that, I, I love that video because it's a bunch of running. I listen to country music while I run, and the joke used to be, if you played country music backwards, you got the dog, the truck, and the wife all back. Remember this joke? People have heard this. But that isn't how country songs are written now, necessarily. They all seem to follow a certain template now, just in case any of you are going, hey, what's country music like? I'm sure that's what you were worried about this morning. 
They seem like they have to talk about a few things. Trucks, yes, they have to talk about trucks. Then they have to talk about whiskey or beer, sometimes bourbon, okay? They have to mention another musician, generally another country music star, in their song. And here's the one that applies to the sermon. They seem to have to mention something about God, His church, or being a Christian almost all the time. But here's the bummer about that. Eleven out of ten times, they seem to be missing the point when it comes to the God of the Bible. And remember, I'm a fan. They tend to paint a deity that you have to appease by attending church or looking a certain way or being in the front pew on Sunday, and apparently we're not very justified. And the problem with all of those examples is that none of those examples are biblical, and none of those make Jesus the hero or the point, nor is the Holy Spirit necessary to be pleasing to God in any of what most of those songs really talk about. So sometimes, though, we kind of get excited because there's a mention of Jesus, and we think, look, this song is Christian. It's evangelizing. No, it's not. Just because you have a sticker on the back of your car that says, no, K-N-O-W, Jesus, no peace, and no, N-O, Jesus, N-O, peace, doesn't for one second mean that you fulfilled the Great Commission. And if you have that sticker on the back, I'm sorry, I wasn't calling you out, I just don't like that sticker. It probably means you've given someone ammunition against your faith because of how you drive. So I have a recommendation. Here's an application. If you drive bad and you have a Christian sticker on the back of your car, take it off and put a Mormon sticker on it, okay? Do that. BYU. All right, all right, here we go. So back to the sermon. (laughs) So we have 120 devoted people, maybe less, around the believing in the work of Christ. They have devoted their lives to the one who died and rose again, even after he ascended and obeyed him not to leave Jerusalem, but stay in obedience and wait for the power from the Holy Spirit to descend. That was all verse 1. Verse 2, Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, there's something I want you to notice in these two verses that either get ignored or de-emphasized generally when reading or hearing this passage. Here they go. Suddenly, a sound like, emphasis mine, The blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Last week, Daniel talked about how much of the letter of Acts is descriptive, describing what happened, and the writer, we'll call him Dr. Luke, described what he was told while being inspired and led by the Holy Spirit to pen the letter that we are now reading. And sometimes he's describing things And when you are describing things, all of us, there are some times where we don't have the exact word to actually describe what we're talking about, so we use simile-type language or symbolic-type language. And here he uses a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, and I believe this was symbolic language with what was the closest explanation in their language that could be expressed. Whatever the case may be, the inauguration of the Holy Spirit's power among followers of Jesus was coming in a very big, out-of-the-ordinary, supernatural kind of way. 
Verse 4, all of them, 120 or less, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All of them, perhaps meaning the 12, the larger group, or the 120, but any way you cut it, it was those who were devoted to Jesus and obeyed His command to stay in Jerusalem. They began to speak in tongues. Now, before I unpack this, I need some of us to take a breath, okay? And maybe imagine that what we have been taught about speaking in tongues isn't necessarily what the Scriptures teach, but what some group of people have affirmed, and maybe perhaps we have had an experience that lines up well with what that group has taught. We want to see what the text says without bringing our own biasness or expectations into the text, which is hard. Because as long as I have been following Jesus, there has been an argument and conflict regarding this specific phrase and push for a specific understanding of what this means. Luke writes that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled means to be dominated, to be led by the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What we will see in the next few verses is that these tongues was not just some assumed prayer language, but other known languages that people present spoken and understood. And we will understand more of this next week as Peter will stand before the crowd and quote the prophet Joel and what Joel predicted and foresaw. So we'll study that next week. But verse 5 says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now, this is supernatural. This is very, very rare. But I think the explanation that people were speaking a known language rather than an unknown language takes away some of the luster for this miracle because people generally, we want to feel special. We want to be special. We want to be affirmed because we did something or are something that is abnormal and should either be written about or talked about or celebrated. Real quick, a rule of thumb theologically and biblically is if we're the hero in the text or if we're the hero in our story, Jesus isn't. So when you read the Bible, exalt and glorify Jesus, not you. Reading Scripture will make a lot more sense, and you won't have to talk about yourself as much. Point to Jesus. And what God did here was not give each of those waiting for the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit their own language that they then could communicate to God in a special way, but that the Holy Spirit decided to show off His appearance by giving those who trusted Jesus at His word a confirmation of the Spirit by giving them languages that were known but unknown to each of them. How many of you speak another language? Okay, decent amount of you. I don't, but I like country music, so that's what you found out about me today. Verse 7, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Now, Luke points out two phrases that mean a similar thing, and they describe exactly what the onlookers were feeling. Bewilderment, and they were utterly amazed. And he will use these adjectives again in a moment, but what I believe he is attempting to convey was that this moment of the inauguration of the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling believers of Jesus 
was not only a big deal, it was actually the birth of the body of Christ, the church. Because these believers, these disciples, whatever term you want to use, were being given what Paul says is the deposit guaranteeing of our future inheritance. We've read this passage before, but in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Spirit coming in this way shows his power. It also shows his ability to make God the Father and God the Son the point without trying to take credit for himself. So the onlookers who heard the commotion and they heard their native language being spoken asked this question in verse 8. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? So we're talking different languages from a pretty broad area of nationalities and tongues. In the first century, there was no Rosetta Stone. The internet did not, did not exist. Schools did not teach faraway dialects. This was miraculous because these were not only languages that these followers of Jesus had never learned, most of them were probably languages they had never even heard spoken before. So look at where those who heard their native tongue were from as they gather at Pentecost. Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, uh, that word, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Teaching team, if you don't know how to pronounce a word, just go right past it, okay? That's, that's what I do. And Dr. Luke begins in the east. And he lists a group of dialects east of Jerusalem. Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia were all towards the east. Then he moves to the north, including Judea, the very place where they were, and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, uh, that one, and Pamphylia, which were all Roman providences of Asia Minor, as we know it today. Then he moves south to Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and northern Africa, then west, Rome and Cretans, then again south, Arabians. And what were they saying? The text says that they were declaring the wonders of God in their own language. This wasn't some weird babble, should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Kia, okay? That's not what this was. Sorry. This wasn't facts or the weather or anything that didn't matter, this was men and women dominated by the Holy Spirit who came like a rushing wind and began to give these followers of Jesus the words in languages unlearned by all of them, praising and speaking the wonders of God Almighty. So then there's a question, verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Amazed and perplexed or bewildered earlier on is used. These reactions are natural to a supernatural thing taking place. Twice he indicates that they were amazed. The word in Greek is a word that means literally to push out of their senses. It is exactly what we say when we use the modern phrase, that blew my mind. That is exactly what he said. He blew their minds as they heard the, this phenomenon happening and occurring. And linked with that, Luke says, they were bewildered. 
Now, Daniel pointed out that much of Acts is descriptive, and it is. Some of it is prescriptive, but we need more of the Word of God to make a judgment on what parts of the letter are prescribed as things that we also should do rather than just something that happened here and was done. Let me give you an example. Last week, Daniel read and taught us about the apostles choosing a twelfth apostle. And what did they use? What did they use? They cast lots. And they chose Matthias. And after that, how often did people use lots in the New Testament? (laughs) Zero! Why? Because of what we're studying today. The Holy Spirit came and resides in those who have trusted Jesus as their salvation. This inauguration of the new covenant is found in the coming of the Holy Spirit. No longer are things left to chance. Why? Because the third person of the Trinity resides in us to bring to remembrance what we have read and learned in His very Word. I don't know what reading and meditating on Scripture looks like for you right now. I don't know if you've had a hard time getting back into God's Word of late since maybe the new year, or maybe at all. But you need to know that if Jesus is your Lord, we ought to want to know Him personally and experientially, and I'd go as far to say obsessively. I shouldn't know all of Debo Samuel's stats from yesterday more than I know the book of Luke. Because God, with us, He's knowable. And I want to know Him. I want to learn new things about Him each day. I want to be reminded of His goodness and grace and peace. And I want to look Him in the eyes, spiritually speaking, here on earth before I look Him in the eyes in eternity. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I don't know what reading and meditating on Scripture looks like for you. I don't, I don't know if you've had a hard time in the Word lately, but I've been having a really hard week spiritually. I don't know if it's because of this passage, or the past few years have been things I've been reminiscing about lately. But God has been sanctifying, and as we point out very often, He does not always sanctify with pillows. There have been convicting passages that I've read lately. There have been convicting conversations that have bewildered me lately because I realize that God is in the business of transforming and shaping His people. But guess what? Growth hurts. And nothing has been more obvious to me in the past week that motivation matters. So there's going to be a little bit of confession here. Many times my motives are not pure. I want to selfishly grow. Wanting to be more like Jesus in and of itself is not a bad thing, but often it leads me to pride and exaltation of myself rather than Jesus. So when we read a passage like 2 Timothy where it points out how profitable it is to study God's Word, I need not to want to do that so I can be praised, so that I can be made much of, but because the evidence of God is transforming sinners into saints. Not because we are without sin, Jesus has got the monopoly on that. But because of what Jesus had done, we are grafted in by him. He is superseded over my sin and mistakes. He increases and I decrease. Less of me and all of him, church. 
And so I ought to want to be in God's Word, obeying Him at His Word, applying the conviction of the Holy Spirit as I read and consume His Word, the Bible, not so I will be better, but because Jesus will be seen in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in me. Can I get an amen? Nietzsche once put it this way, if you want me to believe in your Redeemer, you're going to have to look a lot more redeemed. So don't hear that quote or Mike's, oh, as that I'm communicating that as try harder. That is the religious mistake of a lot of people that would prefer to attempt to justify themselves rather than abide and receive grace through the, God, through the gift of God and Jesus' work. So hear that quote and read God's Word and apply it. Listen and obey. As we put into practice God's commands and view people through the lens of the gospel, God is in the business of transforming us and growing us, but it's going to hurt if it's actually God doing the work, church, because often he'll show us where we've missed it. I've said this before, but every time we open God's word, it is an opportunity for us to repent and recommit to following Jesus. And yes, friends, we all need to be reminded of how much we need to repent while also being reminded of how gracious God is to see us and look at us. And when he looks at us, he sees his son rather than how we probably see ourselves. And repentance has always been an invitation to be intimate with God. So repent if you see something where you're not making it right. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? They asked. What a great question. And unfortunately, for 2,000 years, conclusions have been made, many that were unbiblical and created a sense of pride and exaltation of experience rather than the understanding of this miracle was not to prop up the gift, but to prop up the gift giver. That is what is so unfortunate, and I think we often replace worshiping God with what experience or feeling we can get from Him, like a spiritual high. But if Hebrews is true in Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, even though our circumstances and mood and culture change, our God stays the same. And so we shouldn't worship him only when he gives us a certain feeling or talk about him when we're in a specific mood, but we ought to focus on who he is and give praise and honor to him in season and out of season because God is due our worship because of who he is and what he has done for us. So what does this mean? My 2,000-year-later response is that this speaking in other people's tongues means that the new covenant of Christ living, dying, rising, and ascending has been fulfilled and completed, and now the Holy Spirit resides in those who trust Jesus. No longer would a temple have to be built to the exact cubit bits of anything that were required of God to house His presence. No temple built of anything but flesh and blood needed to exist, and the Spirit in the new covenant is where it resides in us, because we are the temple where God indwells and the Spirit leads, convicts, comforts, and sanctifies us as we follow Jesus at His Word. So church, becoming a Christian means we are adopted into His family. It means we are included in His church. It means we are indwelled with the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. 
And now we can know God better and do works by faith and trust God at his word, not because we are good, but because God is good and he resides in us because of grace given to us in Jesus. Verse 13, some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. (laughs) This is kind of a to-be-continued verse. Because there are a few reasons that they doubt what is happening and attempt to dismiss this amazing happening of the Spirit descending like a rushing wind and speaking through the followers of Jesus in languages they do not know. And this is why I want to remind us that it is through the Spirit of God that we confess that Jesus is Lord. And it makes perfect sense to us if we have become Christians, if we have followed Jesus, while it seems to be nonsense to a world that wants to justify themselves. Laura, I'm going to invite you up, and as you come up, I want to show the church something. This is dear to me. It sits on my bookshelf. I don't read it, and one of the reasons I don't read this is because it's one of my father's Bibles, and it's in a different language that I don't speak. This one's especially old. Uh, It's not as oldest that's on my bookshelf. This says Mike Riley, and it says 1958. He has some from the 30s and some from the 10s. This one is in a different language. I believe this one's in German. And the realization is the thing that I noticed as when he passed away and my wife and I went back to Arizona to gather a bunch of his things was that he had many Bibles in many different languages. The reason being was that before Google Translate, my father was a translator for the U.S. Army and as a spy for the army in the Korean War. And then when he got out of the service, he had picked up many different languages that he spoke fluently. Now, my father was not a religious man, which I'd hope that most of us who have committed to Jesus in this room would also say that we're not religious people because we have a real personal relationship with Jesus, but that was not my dad. I'm quoting him who would say that he's not a religious man, and his his specific understanding of what religion was was to try to look a certain way and to go to church, kind of like a country song. He did not believe in God, nor did he see a need for him in his or his family's life. So why, you may ask, did my father have so many Bibles in different languages? Well, my dad spoke 12 languages fluently that I knew of, and I'm pretty sure he was picking up a 13th language when he passed away due to complications of Alzheimer's in his 70s. The reason he had the Bibles was because it was one of the easiest ways in the old days to find out how words were written in different languages and to pick up the reading and writing of that language. My dad probably at one point had memorized more scripture than I had, possibly even more than I have now. He also knows more of the Bible. He knew more of the Bible in more languages than I do for sure, including Greek and Hebrew, which were two languages I knew that he spoke, and yet he, those were two of the three original languages that the Bible was actually written in. The problem is, with my dad and all his knowledge, with all that information, with all the original language ability, none of it went from the head to the heart. And none of it was ignited by the Spirit of God as affection towards His Creator and my Savior, Jesus. For the past almost five years, I've been a pastor here at COV, and I've done my best to open the Scriptures and to share what I believe is the emphasis of the text, the context in which it is written through the early author inspired by the Holy Spirit, and none of my study or effort is with power to make a man, woman, or child change at all spiritually. 
Only God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can do that. And as we studied today, it was that the Holy Spirit, according to the book of Acts, authored by the Dr. Luke, as he was led by the Holy Spirit, that Spirit is now available to those who trust and turn to Jesus to this very day. The Holy Spirit is not a magic pill or a magic trick. He's not an it or a thing. He, the Holy Spirit, is God inside those of who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, were able to see Jesus for who He really is, which is Savior, Lord, and God. So church, my ask of us, we need to try not to focus too much on the gifts and forget the gift giver, but we also need to stop acting like we aren't indwelled with the Spirit of God to glorify God through our lives and actions. Some of us are intimidated to share our faith. Some of us are intimidated to, to engage with people and even bring up the fact that we attend a church and we have a relationship with Jesus. But let me remind you, the same Spirit who led these apostles to preach and proclaim the gospel throughout all the world, that Spirit resides in you if you've trusted Jesus and He wants to use you right where you are as a witness for the King. So I'm going to pray for us. And Laura's going to lead us in two songs. And my hope is, as you hear the sermon, as you've uh, heard a teaching on a text that's hard to hear sometimes and, and is still somewhat confusing, that the Spirit of God, if you've trusted Jesus, would start to convict you to turn again, to repent, to change direction. I don't know what's going on in your life, nor do I need to, because I don't need to be the one that you confess things to, but you ought to want to confess it to God, because every time we repent, it is an opportunity to be intimate with Him. And maybe some of you haven't turned to Him yet. Maybe you've pretended to. Maybe you've kind of had a country song type of faith. I'd encourage you as we sing to allow the Word of God and allow the Spirit of God to, to do something in you. And maybe today is the day that affection is stirred for the God who loved you right where you were and doesn't expect you to clean yourself up to come to Him, but meets you right where you are. But here's the trick. God won't let you stay right where you are if you turn to Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You are good and holy, and I thank You for the reminder that I am not. But I thank you, God, that even in that reminder, I have one who did for me what I could not do for myself, and I can trust and engage and love and follow him. And so, Lord, I pray that however you stir this morning, that you would be glorified through these people in this room. God, may you be glorified. May you be lifted high. May Jesus be made much of. Holy Spirit, would you move mightily amongst your people? We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.